You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, May the 23rd, coming to you today from Doncaster as I overlook the race course, having hosted the Thoroughbred Breeders Association National Hunt Awards last night. A very enjoyable occasion, as it always is. Please excuse my voice, which is labouring somewhat under the strains of that and the travel of late. Today, we are concentrating chiefly on the Derby and the threat to the Derby from the pressure group, the animal rights group, Animal Rising, and what the Jockey Club are going to do about that. David Yates is newsboy from the Daily Mirror and has been across this story. David, what's happening here? What are the Jockey Club uh, aiming to do in response to Animal Rising's threat? Well, yesterday they sought an injunction against uh, protesters. I don't think they've actually uh, got a name to serve um, the injunction on if if they actually get it from the courts. Uh, Just a bit of background to this. Obviously, as you mentioned, we had the Grand National protests, uh, which delayed the race by 14 minutes. We've had a couple more at Air and Doncaster. This was said to be a prelude of protests uh, throughout the summer. Uh, Animal Rising have said that uh, they hope that up to 1,000 protesters will attend. Of course, um, Epsom is a slightly different case to most other racecourses because the inside is public land, uh, which causes complications of its own. So uh, the Jockey Club have acted. Um, There are, as as we will discuss, uh, potentially more serious ramifications for breaches in terms of protests if this injunction is granted. All right, let's hear from the Jockey Club's Chief Executive, Nevin Truesdale, who explains why this course of action has been taken. Yeah, we, we, we were very clear, Nick, after entry, and obviously the thing that we've done since, that we wanted to leave absolutely no stone unturned in seeking to deter and indeed um, protect the event, protect the horses, protect the participants um, from what is a reckless and illegal protest that we saw at entry. Um, and I'm very clear that um, this is a very um, rational and proportionate step in seeking to achieve that um we're very um protective of this event we're very proud of this event as we in racing all should be and we are being used here as a sport really as a platform for what a wider cause i think i think that's very clear by now and by some of the utterances we've heard from animal rising so what we're doing here is putting in place hopefully deterrence um to um, to, to make sure that there's uh, there's less chance and, and, a, and a clearer route to prosecution um, for those who do decide um, to break the law on Derby Day, um, and um, that's certainly something we hope the court will take a take take a positive view of. So clearly, now the question is: Are you allowing people the routes to legitimate protest? Absolutely. Um, so again, as we've said in our statement, we're very clear that um, peaceful and legitimate protest um, is something that actually we have no problem with, that we welcome. We should all have no problem with that. And we have offered Animal Rising a specific place outside the race course on the day of the Derby um, to um, express those views. And indeed on their website, if you look, you'll see that they are planning um, activity, family-based activity, they say, eggless spoon races, um, I'm not quite sure what those are, and um, and other activities that, that will um, 
that, that will that, that will go towards doing that. So there's no problem at all with peaceful protest, with expressing those views. And um, this injunction is aimed only at those who are planning to break the law by getting on the track and or in around the track to disrupt the running of the derby. So Nevin, what about the hill, which is an area that the jockey club doesn't own? Well, the way the injunction will work if it's granted is that will it will um, prevent access to specific places on the track um, and then around the track and obviously the hill as you say Nick is not an area boom but there's an area where we will still be able to police will still be police there will still, there will still be security there um, so it's really about covering the access points to the track and the parade ring and obviously that includes access points from the hill but there's no question at all as we know Epsom is an open site and it's a it's probably a more difficult site to police than, than maybe some other race courses but um, we're certainly t- we're taking as you'd expect all the sort of robust steps that we can. That was Nevin Truesdale, Chief Executive of the Jockey Club. This is Harry Stewart Moore, partner at Gardner, leader, commercial litigator with a a huge experience of of horse racing. Harry, first of all, what does this really mean? And we should point out, of course, that it hasn't actually been been granted yet. But if it is granted, what does it mean? Yeah, that's right. That's the first point is that this is the the Jockey Club is taking the unusual step of um, the commendable step, in my view, of publishing the uh, application papers, most of the application papers in advance of a hearing that looks like it's going to take place on Friday. I mean, if it's window dressing, an awful lot of effort and, and I suspect money has gone into it. They've instructed Pinson Masons, who are a um, big city law firm. Um, and I think that, you know, there are four witness statements, a claim form, an uh, application notice, um, an awful lot of research has gone into um, the potential protesters and an awful lot of background has been set up. Uh, set out at various other, uh, regarding various other protests at places like Doncaster and Aintree. So a ton of work's gone into it. And I suspect that um, there, there is a, a method uh, to, to, to this, which is, um, in fact, Jockey Club said in their statement, it is to ratchet up the risks um, of anyone who plans on uh, disrupting the racing. Um, by making them subject to a potential um, contempt of court proceedings rather than just police proceedings. And it appears from the witness statement of um, Nevin Truesdale that um, the police have supported this application. One of the interesting things about it, of course, is that they don't really, they, don't, they, they can't completely nail down who they want to serve this um, order on if they're given it on Friday and so um, they've asked for uh, an order from the court allowing them to email it to pers- largely to persons unknown at the moment um, and that's going to obviously uh, that's unusual and um, I would have thought that's going to present something of a um, logistical challenge but I suspect also there is an element in this of um, sh- showing that uh, any potential you know, troublemakers, as some of us might call them, um, that, you know, the Jockey Club means business. Um, and, uh, you know, people do react to being served with court documents in a way that, um, you know, they might they might feel less concerned, um, you know, in the absence of having been served with those court documents. So uh, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't think they've done it for no reason at all by any stretch. Um, we'll learn a lot more on 
Friday um, as to whether they're actually granted the order they're seeking. I suppose what I'm interested in is the practicalities of it. If you were a, uh, you were dressed as a, a normal race goer, you didn't have your pink Animal Rising T-shirt on, and you came in in your morning suit on Derby Day, having bought a ticket, and there were several of you, and you and you managed to get your way into the paddock, and then you glued yourself to the railings, or you uh, glued yourself to the winning post uh, in your in your top hat and tails. Uh, what what effect is this injunction going to have on what happens to you relative to what would have happened anyway? Yeah, I think on the day the answer is very little. Uh, I, I, I don't think um, that, that 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 any you know what this order actually is is an order that that um, these people don't essentially break the law and and you know by laws some pretty esoteric stuff the Epsom and the Walton Downs conservators. Uh, bylaws um, are, are mentioned in the claim form. So um, it, it's it, it's not going to change a great deal on the day, I suspect. Um, but it's I think its impact is two things. One is it gives the jockey club a, a, an opportunity to get on the front foot and to, I say to certain individuals, look, we've got, we've spotted you, we've gone and got a court order, we're ready for you, uh, here it is. And two is <coughs> if you do uh, breach this order, then the sanctions are going to be more serious than they might. Well, we are. Our aim is for the sanctions to be more serious than they otherwise would have been, because we now have the option of um, proceedings for contempt of court. And does it actually have any meaningful impact on how police go about their business? If police know that there is an injunction like this, will they proceed differently to how they normally would? I mean, operationally, who knows? Um, on the day, I don't think uh, theoretically. I mean, this is a these are uh, this is an injunction in in, in the civil courts. Um, so I think uh, it's unlikely, as I say, that there will be any material difference in the way that the um, the uh, <laughs> the event is is policed and run generally. And, and interestingly, one of the um, the issues relied upon in the witness statements that support the application is um, the extra security and uh, police presence that um, that they're going to have to pay for on the day. Um, so uh, I think the that's a, a long way of saying, no, I don't think it is going to change the way it's actually policed on the day, which I think, you know, is going to be policed um, pretty uh carefully i think we can assume on the basis of the fact that you know everyone knows it's going to happen commercial litigator harry stewart more and before that nevin truesdale chief executive of the jockey club david yates who is newsboy from the daily mirror is with me david this is a story that is gathering significant momentum where do you think racing is in relation to animal rising now well i feel that the relationship between uh, racing and animal rising is now uh is i think it's getting away from what i perceive to be shadow boxing um remember that in the immediate aftermath of the protests at the randolph's grand national i think the the language certainly from racing was temperate and it was conciliatory um deliberately so i think uh remember um, Nevin Truesdale invited Orla Coughlin of Animal Rising to attend stables and studs so she, she could see at first hand the care um, that, uh, that, that that thoroughbreds get. Um, however, I think now we're sort of moving away from this. Um, the, the, the Mail on Sunday, which originally broke 
the story about the Grand National had another front page this weekend. Um, Nathan McGovern, Animal Rising spokesman, said, we've already made it very public that we intend to cause disruption. Police and the Jockey Club are very worried about their ability to secure the course and prevent disruption from happening. You could say they have almost admitted that the racetrack is unpleasable. And so I, I think we're moving away from that more that, that that temperate conciliatory language that we had uh, just over a month ago and now you know we're getting down to the nitty gritty aren't we essentially um there was there was a meeting uh, 12 days ago on may the 11th which uh, was called actually by animal rising um that uh, that animal rising and the jockey club should all get round the table in an effort to understand one another a bit better. Um, this was attended by Dan Kidby, the co-founder of Animal Rising, and also Kerry Waters uh, of Animal Rising. Amy Starkey of the Jockey Club was there with uh, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer Stuart Williamson, um, the Jockey Club's Regional Head of Veterinary Services, Simon Knapp, and the uh, Head of Corporate Affairs at the BHA, Greg Swift. Um, after this meeting, Kerry Waters um, emailed Amy Starkey, and I'm going to read you this because it. I think this shows where we are very clearly. Um, after listening to your points of view last week, it is clear your team is deeply and emotionally invested in the welfare of horses, said Kerry Waters. I recognise your sincere plea for us to reconsider was rooted in genuine care for every human and horse involved. The same compassion for life means we are bound by conviction to do what is right and stop the race. Our sincere plea to you is to cancel the derby, to eliminate all risk and reconcile our shared desire for a just and peaceful outcome. There really isn't that much that divides us. Now, I've, I've been very keen to use temperate and conciliatory language in, in common with most other people in racing. But let's call this for what it is. This is cloud cuckoo land. Um, there is a great deal that divides Animal Rising, who want the derby to be cancelled, and the jockey club and the racing community who want it to take place. Um, I should just mention that there are there, there were planned... Um, in addition to to the disruption, remember six women were arrested last week, last year when they got on the track uh, before the derby. There is also a peaceful, uh, seemingly family fun day um, that is due to take place um, outside Epsom between ten and four, uh, ten a.m. and four p.m. Um, organised by Animal Rising. The events include running races, soapbox race eggless spoon race a three-legged race a fancy hat competition no feathers of course uh, an open mic and arts and crafts um but i suspect as as you suspect and everyone else in racing knows there's going to be something planned that is a good bit more sinister uh, than that now a lot has been written over the last couple of weeks about the right for lawful uh, the right to lawful and peaceful protest and that should be sacrosanct in any civilised society. I, I think we all agree on that. Um, from a personal point of view, I am uncomfortable with the changes that the government has made over the last 12 months to restrict that right. But peaceful and lawful protest does not involve criminal damage and it does not involve trespass. It's very clear that we realise that. Um, 
if if you if you use wire cutters to get through a fence on private property that is criminal damage and then if you go through the hole that you have created to get onto that private property that is trespass um i've i've become quite irritated over the last couple of weeks reading what i have uh, read in that that uh, animal rising perhaps that that it's no more than uh, lawful and peaceful protest what happened at aintree was a good deal more than that and it seems that that is going to uh, be the case at Epsom on Saturday week. Um, Epsom, of course, was the, uh, the the scene of the most dramatic political protest in 1913 when uh, Emily Davidson ran in front of the King's Horse Anma. Um, I, I've also read pieces that, have, that uh, equate or conflate uh, the suffragettes with animal rising. Uh, I, I can't see that. One was about um, giving women the vote. The other was about... Uh, bringing about a, um, a, an animal-free food system that it seems has never existed in this country. And if it ever does, it won't be for many hundreds of years. Okay, could you just read me again the first couple of sentences of that response to the Jockey Club from Animal Rising? Just read me those first two sentences again about we recognise... After listening to your points of view last week... It is clear your team is deeply and emotionally invested in the welfare of horses. They they concede that. I recognise your sincere plea for us to reconsider was rooted in genuine care for every human and horse involved. The same compassion for life means we are bound by... That's, you can, you, that's fine. You can stop there. So all surely now, when racing is engaging in the in the public debate about its legitimacy, it simply needs to read those two sentences from its most vociferous and extreme opponent yeah i mean that's a that's a, a recognition um that uh, the, the jockey club it has a genuine care for every horse and human involved those are the words not of the jockey clubs um uh, press officers uh, or spin doctors but of Terry Waters of Animal Rising, correct. Well, there's nothing like a, a fast two-year-old to quicken the pulse and get the blood pumping. Um, a sadner looked just that at Ripon on Sunday and has had time experts, form experts, and just about every other expert um, working out just how far he's going to win the Coventry Stakes at Royal Ascot. His trainer is George Bowie. George, should we buy into the hype? Were you as excited as everybody else? Yeah, look, I think obviously it was, it was very exciting to see. I, I didn't expect him to do that. Um, his work had been good. He, he hadn't overexerted himself at home and, and was well prepared from the breeze up. So uh, he'd been working on ground, which was quite a lot slower than that in Newmarket. And he's got a very fast action, and, and we hope that it would be fast ground up there. And, and he showed his best, showed his best form for sure. And, and Ripon is not the easiest place in the world because there are, uh, as we know and is often said on, on TV and when people watch the racing, there are sort of ridges that, that can be quite tricky for a two-year-old to navigate. Yeah, he, look, he's a, he's a well-balanced horse who I think actually there was a there was certainly a moment where he was in behind them and I thought, come on, off we you know, get to work. And uh, he did get a bit unbalanced and you know his turn of foot got him out into the clear and, and he did just sort of power on away from them but William was you know, adamant that he didn't handle the track and was a bit green and you know, obviously he looked straight when he got away from them but there is certain improvement there and I think the track should suit him very well at, uh, at Ascot uh, Do you think he's the best two year old you've had? 
yeah, I think he's he's certainly um, certainly what the what the time and the visual look was. He, he has to be. Um, Soprano was a was a very good winner and, and recorded the highest debut performance that I've had so far. A couple of weeks ago at Newmarket, but um, he blew that out of the water by. I think fifteen pounds. So, um, yeah, he's he's certainly right up there. And when you get a horse like this from the Breeze Up sales, is it fairly apparent fairly quickly what they're going to be capable of? Yeah, like, like I said, he he's not explosive at home, um, and those are you know we've been lucky to train a few memasses, and Believing is another one who's narrated one hundred and eight group through one another day, and she's not flashy at home. She's got an amazing attitude. I think anyone that watches her and and also watches him, he puts his head down and tries. But um, he'd only done three bits of work since he came to us, really, and um, he did everything nicely. He's he's a pretty straightforward horse. I think we'll probably start to to see a bit more in his in his work up to Ascot, but um, at the moment he's just he's just sort of gets on and does his job. So would you be would you be convinced in your own mind that he is a a sprinter through and through, or is this a horse that that could have distance potential beyond that? I think he's probably a, he's probably a six furlong horse. He's he's bred to be. Um, he's not overly big. He'd be fifteen two, um, and he does look he does look speed at the moment. I you know could very easily run him over five, but I think he'd have been slightly on his head over five. So you know the six furlong. Coventry trip, stiff six. He's probably right up the street. And he was he was a good breezer at the sales, but he wasn't sort of knock your eyes out. This is going to be the next superstar champion. He didn't start the eleven to ten favorite the other day. You know, it's it's not as though everybody thought. Well, you know, th- this is a horse that's going to completely demolish his his opponents. What what do you think it was about him at the sale that appealed? He was he was he was highly recommended to start with, and you know, was a horse who. You know, Oshin Murphy actually had a big part to do with it. He, he goes around and rides a lot of breezes, and, and he said he was a very nice horse and wants fast ground. So, you know, a, a credit to him and Hamish McCauley, who also picked him out. They, they were doing the hard yards in the sort of early spring and found him. And um, his attitude is the main thing. And I think, you know, we've been lucky enough to train some nice horses from the breeze ups. And Mr. Angel, Cache, you know, they've all got super minds. They walk around in the morning and don't sweat and don't overexert themselves and, and he's he's very much of that mould. He you know, he, he loves his work but he, he doesn't he doesn't put too much in and, and do himself over really. George Bowie there on a Zadner who won at Ripon on Sunday. The same day at Nace Aidan O'Brien backed up his very impressive Navin debutant winner at Nace, River Tiber, but it was a Zadner who who stole the headlines. David Yates, when when I first knew you, two-year-old racing was your thing. It's what you liked to bet on. It was what interested you the most. Did that stir your blood suitably on Sunday? Certainly. Um, I think that, it's first of all, it's worth pointing out that looking at the the market for the Coventry Stakes, uh, it is River Tiber who heads the betting at a best price, three to one, and, and uh, a Sadner, is available at seven to two, but yeah, he was thunderously impressive, wasn't he? Um, he's a breeze up purchase, which uh, wouldn't be a massive surprise. Only cost one hundred and sixty thousand quid, uh, one hundred six thousand guineas uh, at the breeze ups, which by the standards of those sales these days is not um, a massive amount. Um, he went off at four to one for 
uh, that race at, at Ripon. Remember that we've we've had the uh, the Dante meeting at York, but it was another part of North Yorkshire where perhaps uh, we saw one of the signature performances of the week. Um, and yeah, time form have given uh, a sadner. Obviously, when you're when you're looking at, at two year old races, particularly in the early part of the season, there's very little to go on. Only one of the six horses to contest uh, the the uh, the six furlong race at Ripon. It was the Hammond Associates Celebrates Yorkshire Wooden Spoon Novice Stakes. Only one of them had run before, so of course it's very hard to get a handle on the form. That's why Time Form use uh, time figures, and they gave a Sadner a figure of a hundred nine. Now. Now, just to contextualise that, um, only Caravaggio uh, clocked a higher time figure prior to Royal Ascot. Um, Simon Barker, the two-year-old handicapper uh, at time form, said that it, the, the figure of 109 was actually higher than uh, many horses would achieve in victory in the Coventry Stakes. So that gives you an idea of of quite what uh, George Bowie's two-year-old achieved last Sunday. All right, just moving on, Dave. We've got the um, declarations in for Thursday's Brigadier Gerard Stakes, which features the return of Desert Crown, the Derby hero from last year, who has not run since his imperious display at Epsom. His opponents are going to be Cash, Chichester, Claymore, Solid Stone, who is presumably in there to make the pace for him, and intriguingly, Hookham, last year's Coronation Cup winner, who we thought was going to be retired but came back from an injury. It'll be a reasonable test for him. Yes, it will. Uh, the um, it, It'll be very interesting to see uh, Hookham in there. As you say, it's likely that uh, Solid Stone will make the pace. Uh Play more of of Jane Chapel Himes, of course, uh, a winner at, at Royal Ascot last year when beating Reach for the Moon. Uh, Francesco 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 Clemente Clemente three. So it's no pushover. Um, as you mentioned, we've not seen Desert Crown since that victory at Epsom last June. Um, it, it was described at the time as a, a as a a minor issue, but it ruled him out for the rest of the season. Um, the reports from Newmarket, that at least the ones that I've heard this spring, have been pretty positive. Um, I spoke to um, Bruce Raymond, the racing manager to Desert Crown's owner, Saeed Sahail, last Friday. He said that his final piece of work in Newmarket last Friday had gone very well, that he's not a spectacular workhorse, but um, he'd finished ahead of his lead horse and done everything uh, that they'd asked. I think, just reading between the lines of Sir Michael Stout too, uh, that he's happy with how Desert Crown has come along. So what we've got here is a horse who, whilst he was an impressive derby winner, he's a colt who's raced just three times. And I think that most of us left Epsom on June the 4th last year, thinking that there was still a massive upside uh, to Desert Crown that, of course, we didn't get to see in the second half of the summer. Let's hope that we see more of it in 2023. But as you say, uh, Thursday night's test and a, a really a really informative and enjoyable meeting at Sandown Park, of which this is the feature. This will tell us a good deal more. David, Irish Classics this weekend. I suppose the key news points here are that Morge will not run in the, the Irish 1000. She'll wait for the Coronation Stakes at Royal Ascot, leaving Tahira what seems a free hit in that race. And Al Riffa, who won the National Stakes last year, one of last year's leading juveniles, 
he will not run in the Irish 2000 guineas. That's right. Last Friday, Saeed Bin Saroor said that Morge wouldn't go to the Curra. I think that was just about the plan insofar as we discussed one after the Kipco 1000 guineas at Newmarket earlier this month. Um, he said that given that she's a diminutive uh, filly, they give her plenty of time and they would come back for the coronation stakes at Royal Ascot. As you say, that that left to here, I think, about the five to two on favourite uh, for Sunday's race. And yesterday, Joseph O'Brien re um, revealed that Al Riffa, who, of course, was a great a group one winner in the national stakes at the Curra last September, that on the back of uh, victory in a maiden at the same track the previous month. He was the market leader for the Irish 2000 Guineas this Saturday, uh, but he will not run. Um, Aiden, uh, Aiden, uh, Joseph O'Brien said he's just had a little setback training. Hopefully it's nothing too serious and he will be back later in the summer. He has options at Ascot and further afield than that as well. So hopefully we will see Al Riffa at some point in high summer, but we won't see him at the Curra this weekend. Well, it is Tuesday, which means we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their excellent stallion book and their global stallion app. And today we head to France to Ara de Mautrie, but to an Englishman, to Nick Bell, who's been at Mautrie for just about a decade now. Uh, Nick, perhaps we can start with the with the history of this place, because it is it is truly extraordinary and one of the, the great jewels of, of French bloodstock. Uh, well, it's had quite a difficult history. Um, I mean, as you say, it was founded in uh, 1875 by when actual Deauville itself was being developed as a sort of holiday resort. Um, and it is literally just outside Deauville. Um, we can see straight into the race course practically. And... Um, but uh, it became quite quickly one of the major stud farms in France uh, under the Rothschilds. And it was built up into about, from very small beginnings, up into about a 200-hectare farm. Um, I remember seeing books from the sort of early 1900s. And there were nearly sort of 200 mares on the farm and about 10 stallions. Um, so they were quite a power in those days. Um, things continued like that through the First World War and, and up to the, the Second World War. But that is when, when there was an invasion of the Germans in the Second World War, things changed drastically. Um, Baron Guy actually left, though he did come back later. Um, and the German, the Nazis actually confiscated all the horses that were on the farm um, and took them back to Germany. Um, there was including horses like Brantome, who had won the Ark and was an extremely good, young, exciting stallion, and some others. Anyway, after the war, uh, Baron Gris and his father, Edward, um, actually went to Germany and they managed to find. Um, the various horses around the place, I think, tossed it around and brought them back to France. Um, and then he, he, he sort of Baron Guy continued. Um, gradually, Baron Guy lived till I think he was 96 or 97. He, he died in 2007. And um, towards the end, the farm had dwindled um, to roughly 100 hectares of what it is now. Uh, the number of mares had, had dropped quite significantly. Um, so it wasn't the power, obviously, what it was in the previous years. And when uh, Baron Guy died, uh, Edouard de Rothschild, Baron Edouard de Rothschild, the president 
owner took over and that was actually when I arrived <laughs> so the two were together so Nick tell me now what the balance is between you know promoting the family operation and trying to put a commercial edge on the on the property well we're not really a commercial stud at all um we don't take borders for example unless they're we had actually a horse for Anita Wigan but then she's a member of the Rothschild family um so we do sell um but it tends to be more cullings uh also when we have too many horses of the same family um I mean that sort of thing and the and the and various horses we feel that we have too many um sort of colts that are not good enough they will go they will go to the sales i mean our objective here is very much to try and find black type horses um that's that's our sole objective really um when i first came we probably had a slightly more commercial view of things Uh, i think the second year or the first year that i was here that we actually topped the sale in arcana in august with the galileo colt um but since then we've tended to go much much more down the route of putting nearly everything into training uh there are the odd horses for sale but mostly everything goes into training and 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 how to what extent have you realized those those objectives um (laughs) that's a good question i suppose the only way you can realize it is by the results on the track and you know for a smallish farm with between 20 25 mares i mean i think we, we we've done you know we've we've sort of boxed above our weight quite often and we've won uh we've had eight group one wins since i've been here um plus another one a horse called the right man that we bred for anita wigan on the farm um we we and we're, we're getting horses that 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 seems to be a lot of horses that seem to be capable of at least running in in the good races. If you're in, you know, you've got a chance of winning them. Um, obviously, like everyone else, you have plenty of horses that don't make the grade. Um, and actually, the last sort of few years have been slightly more barren. Um, I mean, one ten finds in this business, you, you you have you go through periods where everything is good and lots of winners and then periods where things just don't go right um we seem to be coming slightly out of the period where everything wasn't going right um but we haven't managed to sort of hit the heights of when um we had really good horses like Easter Tariq and Armand and those sort of horses that were sort of running in group one races you know regularly um so but you know they'll come back it it it, it, it happens to everyone <laughs> the Aga Khan with with 300 you know um, horses at mares you know so it's uh, it's just one of those things you know um, we we ought to talk a little bit about Divochka because uh, to, to 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 have a, a career as she had one of the great blue hens of Europe and 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 who, who died at, at age thirty four that's that's pretty remarkable what 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 she achieved what kind of legacy has she has she laid down for for Mutri? Yeah, well, she I Divochka mean, was a fantastic mare because she's just one of those mares that you knew was just going to produce a black type horse every um sort of two or three foals um the problem it wasn't a problem um she, but she hadn't produced a group one horse and amazingly of course she did it when she at 21 she produced Lisa Tariq uh so 
Uh, you know, people. Some people say well, you can't breed old mares; they don't produce anything. I mean, she produced her best at 21. Uh, and Issa, if, you, if anyone has ever seen Issa Shriek, I mean, she's built like a bull. So she certainly did her well. Uh, the problem we have really out with Devochka is that we don't have a lot of fillies out of the family. Um, various things and she produced a lot of colts uh quite a few of her da- daughters produced a lot of colts she had a good good mare called russian hill but she produced nothing but colts for us for any good um but her thankfully uh Devo- oh, sorry isa Tariq, who is not the easiest breeder um she only has one ovary um and she's very very difficult to hit in full has produced a filly for us this year by kingman so um she will be wrapped up in cotton wool hopefully <laughs> Um, because we don't have a lot of a lot of fillies in the family, um, so to keep the line going, uh, we have a few out of a out of another mare called something strange who was next to useless herself, but was obviously. Um, but we have quite a few Lahav fillies out of her, um, which we will breed off. Um, but we don't have a lot of fillies of that family, so to keep it going, it's a really good thing that that Lisa has produced produced a filly for us. Now, Nick, from a personal standpoint, the last few years haven't been straightforward at all. You've had prostate cancer, chronic pulmonary sarcoidosis, but you've really applied yourself to raising an awful lot of money. Just tell us a little bit about your, your charity cycle. Well, <laughs> thank you. I mean, it sounds makes me sound like a sort of charitable works, but um, I mean, some of the, the, the I took up cycling very and um, because because of the sort of side effects of the drugs that I drugs that I had to take, and um, they can sort of provide weight loss, and I tend to like to have sort of targets to make you do it. I mean, if you're pouring with rain, you don't really feel like getting on the bicycle, but if you have to go and ride a certain thing at a certain time, 170 kilometers, um, you, you, you have a bit more motivation. And where I, I have a house in Kerry in Ireland, and every year there is the Ring of Kerry cycle race, charity cycle. Well, sorry, not a race, it's just a ride. And I've always seen it, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll try to do that. Um, unfortunately, it was the year of COVID, so we couldn't go to Ireland, and they actually had a sort of, uh, Ring of Kerry ride a distance so you could do 170 kilometers wherever you live so I did 170 kilometers around Normandy um, which actually wasn't as difficult as I thought, thought it was going to be and um, we raised uh, oh nearly 6,000 I think over 6,000 euros for Down Syndrome Kerry which was, which was fantastic um, this year because I hadn't done it in Ireland I'm going to go back to Kerry and actually do, do it the Ring of Kerry challenge this year um, so that's the 1st of July and that's in aid of the Kerry Mountain Rescue and actually I've got a thing planned for next year which is a little bit different but I wanted to give something more back to racing as well so I want to do a sponsored ride from uh, for Odela de Piste, which is the rehousing of racehorses here in France. And it's still very much in its infancy, this idea, but I've sort of roughly planned that. I would like to do a ride from the most northerly racecourse in, in France, the most southerly, 
Now, the North Northerly was actually quasi La Roche, but it's in the middle of Lille, so I decided it wasn't the best idea. So we did an artistic license. I'm going to go from the 2K, and I'm going to go all the way down to Ia, uh, below Toulon, on the Mediterranean coast, and take about 11 days, and I'll carry everything in my self and camp and whatever like that but hopefully that might raise that should raise some money for for them because that is a very deserving cause i mean i you know worked all my life with horses and taken an awful lot out of them so it's about time to give something back i think all right thanks to nick and to all my earlier guests today david is still with me and has some advice for you for today we're going to the 440 at wolverhampton number two h key lales this horse is a course and distance winner a decent run also over seven furlongs uh, back on turf at weatherby a week ago and i hope can go one better here for craig lister and the inform sam james 440 race at wolverhampton selection is number two h key lales david thank you very much thank you very much for listening apologies for the quality of my voice today which is now seriously struggling under the weight of travel and goodness knows what else uh, hopefully back in in better uh, voice tomorrow that was tuesday may the 23rd we'll see you again next time bye-bye you've been listening to nick luck daily brought to you in association with fitzdares the racehorse owners association and thoroughbred racing commentary mm-hmm.